0: Hopefully, we'll be to continue these conversations after the service. Sorry to break it up; so mean. Uh, before we start, um, let, us, uh, let us pray to our God before we before I begin. Lord God and Heavenly Father. Uh, As we come to your word this morning, Lord, we acknowledge our dependence upon you. Lord, we thank you for your word to us. Lord, help me uh, in my weakness to faithfully proclaim your goodness and your gospel. And Lord, let our time together be edifying to us all and to bring glory to you alone. Amen. Uh, This morning, we are back in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so... Uh, If you have your Bibles there, please uh, keep them open as we walk through the passage. Now, a couple of weeks ago, Sam led us through the first 18 verses, and we saw that we can have joy despite the circumstances. Paul was demonstrating that despite his chains and his impending trial before Caesar, Paul was filled with joy because his life had been transformed by Jesus. Paul had joy because the gospel that had came to come to him was being preached to others. The kingdom of God was spreading. Sam showed us that Paul saw the Philippians as partners with him, partners in the gospel. Partners not through an agreement or in a contract or some kind of a business deal, but through Jesus Christ, And we are partners with Paul too, united in the grace that Jesus has given us, partners in sharing the good news with the world. And so Paul encourages his readers to have joy and confidence, joy that the good news is going forth, that people are being reconciled to God, and confidence that he who began the work in them will bring it to completion. What wonderful words of encouragement. And we're picking up this letter today from from verse 18. Today we're going to see more as to why Paul can continue to rejoice in any circumstance, whether in life or in death. And secondly, we're going to see that we are called to live a life worthy of the gospel. But let us pick it up from from the second half of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now and always Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul will keep rejoicing because he knows that he will be delivered. But Paul isn't thinking of about being released from his chains. That word deliverance in verse 19 is the word for salvation. So Paul is confident in his deliverance or salvation, not from his circumstances, but through them, whether by his life or by his death. He's sure that whatever happens in his trial before Caesar, whether he is released or whether he's executed, He will not be ashamed, but instead Christ will be honoured. Even if he isn't acquitted in Caesar's court, he will be acquitted by the only judge whose verdict really matters, because Jesus Christ has already paid for his sins upon the cross. Paul isn't presuming he's going to be able to stand up to the pressure of his trials and temptations on his own. There's two things, do you see, that give Paul the confidence that he'll be able to stand firm in the end. There, in verse 19. It is through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Christ. Paul's salvation is sure because the work of the Holy Spirit is in him. Evidence of God's work in the Philippians gave Paul confidence of their salvation too. And for the same reason, he's sure God will help him stand firm to the end through the Holy Spirit in him. And that help of the Spirit comes in response to the prayers of the Philippians for him. Paul realises that his own perseverance and growth in his faith isn't a private thing between him and God. His progress is only sure because he's side by side with other believers. He'll endure because they're praying for him. And if that's the case for the great Apostle Paul, then surely it is true for us too, right? Your faith, especially your growth in faith, isn't an individual thing between you and God. We need the fellowship and the encouragement and the prayers of other Christians, other believers. Often the help of the Spirit comes through those other Christians. When you ask God for help when you're struggling, that help often comes through a friend who drops in to hang out or to make you laugh or to pray with you. There is this made-up story where there is a great flood and people are scrambling onto their roofs to get out of the rising waters. And a man prays to God, Lord, please help me, please rescue me. And a minute later, a man in a dinghy rows past and says, Hey, hop in. No, the man responds, I'm waiting for God to rescue me. And later a second boat arrives and still it is dismissed. And finally a last boat arrives and the man still refuses. No, I'm waiting on God to rescue me. And finally the waters rise and the man is swept away. And later in heaven God questions the man, why didn't you get in the boats that I sent? I hope you can see the ridiculousness of that story. But it does highlight a truth that we do see in scriptures. God can miraculously do things for his people But so often he chooses people to do his work. And he supports them as they complete the work that he has called them to do. God didn't need Moses to rescue the people from Egypt, as if there was no other way. But God chose Moses, despite his weaknesses. God didn't need Gideon to defeat the Midianites. He could have sent fire from heaven to consume their armies. But God chose Gideon. Time and time again, countless examples where God calls his people to participate in his work. And that hasn't changed now. Throughout the New Testament, God calls us together in fellowship with each other to build each other up. We need each other. If you're going to make progress in the faith, you need the help and the prayers of the people sitting in this room. So stop and take a moment and have a look around. We need each other. Church is much more than a Sunday service with a sermon. Hearing from God's word is fantastic and essential, but there is something special about singing corporately together, praying for one another. Church is a gathering of people who worship our Lord together and strive to live together as Jesus' disciples. We are people you can laugh with, people you can cry with, people you can rejoice with. And yes, we're part of a larger church, the universal body of Christ. There are fellowships with other churches and books and resources and podcasts and so much that is available to us to help us grow. But they don't replace the important role of the local church. We need people around us who know us, to pray for us, people who will challenge us and encourage us. Do you make the most of that opportunity? Good relationships don't happen instantly or magically. You need to invest in them and make an effort to centre those relationships around Jesus. But they're vital to invest in because we need each other. Even Paul needed other Christians around him. When he prayed for help, God sent a deaf... Epaphroditus. Now, because he knows that we need each other, Paul found himself in a bit of a pickle, torn between two options. And we see that in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. As Paul sits chained to a Roman guard, he's uncertain about whether his trial before Caesar will result in his release or his death. And as he ponders those two outcomes, he finds himself pulled in two directions. On one hand, his whole life is about knowing and serving Christ, If his life is spared for however long, that means more opportunities to tell people about Jesus. It means continuing to strive side by side for the faith of the gospel with the Philippians, teaching them and encouraging them through all the challenges that they're facing. But on the other hand, his death means that he'll actually be with Jesus. He will have reached the goal that every Christian is looking forward to he'll be with Jesus. He'll see him face to face. And Paul has no doubt that being with Jesus is far, far better. But the choice is not his. But even if he had given the choice, he's torn. And if we see anything about Paul's heart, then his conclusion won't come as a surprise in verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, For your progress and joy in the faith, so that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Knowing that his return to them would be helpful for the Philippians, his confident hope that Christ will allow him to return to remain longer. And his plan is to use that time to reach the gospel. If Paul gets out of prison, he has a list of things that he'd like to do. A bucket list so to speak. But it's a list with just one point on it. Preach the gospel. Even as he considers the pure joy of being with Jesus, Paul still sees his own desires as less important than the cause of the gospel. He wants to make sure that the Philippians and many others share that joy with him. And so given the opportunity to return, he'll preach the gospel for their progress And joy in the faith. His desire is that through his ministry to them, thou glory all the more in Jesus Christ. Paul is seeking in every decision in his life to choose what is best for other people in the gospel. How often is that the primary criteria for our own decision making? In my own decisions, I'd have to admit that it's far less often than it should be. But what, what could it look like if it was? It might mean that you cut back on that overtime at work. You might not be able to afford those Renaults or the new boat, but you can spend time helping out your neighbour and sharing the gospel with them. Or being at home with the kids more often, so you can build relationships with them and disciple them. It might mean that when you finish school and you look for a job or consider a tertiary education, that it won't be about where you can make the most money or the most successful career, but how can I use the gifts that God has given me and how will God use me in that job or with that degree? It might mean that you choose where to live, not for where the best schools are for the kids or where that has that prestigious house or the big plot of land that you always wanted, but that where you live and the house that you have will serve your local church. Those aren't decisions that come easily or naturally. But if you've come to believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then these are the sort of deliberate and conscious decisions that you'll start to make. Because, like Paul, you know that the joy of the gospel transcends any circumstances. As Sam spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we as a church, both individually and collectively, have been through a bit of a difficult time and there is no clear end in sight, no end date. However, we are called to have joy and confidence through the uncertainty. We don't know the future of Eastgate. We don't know who will come and be our paid pastor. We don't know what God has planned for us for the next five years or next year, or even tomorrow. But Paul writes these verses to the Philippians to give us an example of how to live in that uncertainty. We might face hostility from without. We might face rivalry from within. We might even face death. Whatever is coming to us, Paul shows us that true joy doesn't come from avoiding difficulties. It comes from knowing Jesus and making him known. And so Paul now challenges the Philippians to live lives worthy of the gospel. In light of the joy and the confidence that we have in Jesus, we are now called to live it out. Living in first century Philippi was something that you could be proud of. It was a leading city in Macedonia, where Greece is today. And even though it was a Greek city... Caesar Augustus had declared it to be a Roman colony. It meant that it legally counted as an Italian city, and that gave you certain benefits. Roman laws applied to the city's legal affairs, and taxes were lower. And because of that, retired Roman soldiers would settle there, and colonists were granted Roman citizenship. It was an incredibly valuable thing, a high honour. As a Roman citizen, you had legal rights that the rest of the populace didn't. Philippi was like Rome away from Rome. And being a citizen of Philippi was something that you could be proud of. And it's that sense of civic pride and duty that Paul appeals to when he says to the Philippians, I just want one thing from you. He really has just one demand. But everything else that follows in the letter is teasing out the implications of this just one thing that we see here in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Paul's demand is that they live their lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's just one demand, but it's a big one, it's all encompassing. The phrase there, let your manner of life be worthy, that's one Greek word that literally translates as, behave as citizens worthy. Being a citizen of Philippi was an immense source of pride. It also had a host of unspoken obligations, to revere the emperor as God and take part of the idol feasts, all parts of being a good citizen of Rome. But Paul had one thing that he calls the Philippians to do, is to conduct themselves as citizens in a worthy manner. But not of Rome, but of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there's a twist. They're to behave as Philippian citizens in a way worthy of the gospel because it turns out that they have another citizenship, a more important citizenship. Paul doesn't tell them here, he holds off to the big reveal until later in chapter 3. That's spoiler alert. But in verse 20, he tells them that their citizenship is not of Rome or of Philippi, it's of heaven. Heaven has become their true home. Their heavenly citizenship becomes their primary one. It's what's most important about them, it's more basic to who they are. Their true Lord and Saviour is no longer Caesar. Jesus Christ is their true Lord and Saviour. And so for the time being, they exist and live as dual citizens. They still live in Philippi. They're still Roman citizens, with all the privileges and obligations that that entails. But that's become less significant. Their new citizenship is what takes pride of place. And so Paul says that they're to live their Roman citizens as Roman citizens in Philippi, it should actually reflect their truer, deeper reality of their heavenly citizenship. Just just one thing. Conduct your Roman citizenship in a way that reflects your true citizenship in heaven. Every Christian has become a dual citizen. When you heard about the message of Jesus and you repented from your sin and put your trust in Jesus you are granted citizenship of heaven. That is your true home. You might have an Australian passport, but your primary citizenship is in heaven. Your true Lord isn't King Charles or the PM or the Australian lifestyle. Jesus is your true Lord. And so we are to live out our dual citizenship in a way that shows where our true home is. Our entire lives should show that we are citizens of heaven. When you go overseas and visit another country, you don't renounce your Australian citizenship. But everything you do there, everything you do, you do as an Australian. When someone hears you speak and recognises your accent, all of a sudden you're representing the entire country. It's the same way with being a citizen of heaven. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you do it as a Christian. And so Paul says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do that? Well, that's the next bit in verse 27. Citizens of heaven stand firm together. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you, whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Paul has told them that he's confident he'll be released from prison and returned to them, but regardless of how his situation turns out, they're to live in the same way. They are to stand firm. They'll face all sorts of pressure from their culture and from society as they reject the bits of their Roman citizenship that are inconsistent with their heavenly one. But it's their heavenly one that's to be an anchor, holding them fast, whichever way the wind blows them. And they are to do it in one spirit. You can't be a kingdom of one. There was a guy who tried that in W.A., Uh, He declared his property the Principality of Hutt River and all of his family got, got royal titles, king and queen and prince and princess and duke and whatever. But at the end of the day, all that he got was a massive tax debt from the government. As citizens of heaven, we are bound together, united in Jesus. We share an ethos and values. And so Paul tells us to stand firm together, in one spirit, in united allegiance to the Lord Jesus. And so through the rest of this passage and through the rest of this letter, Paul paints us a picture of what it looks like, the marks of citizenship of heaven and how to live out your dual citizenship. But the ones we're going to look at continually today is that citizens strive side by side for faith of the gospel and that citizens suffer side by side for the faith of the gospel. First, citizens of heaven strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that in the last bit of verse 27? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving, striving, side by side for the faith of the gospel. When we become Christians, it doesn't just involve a change in our passports or where our residency changes. It involves a change of our entire being. We start to have the mind of the citizen of heaven. When the Bible talks about our mind, it doesn't just mean the way that we think. It's much deeper than just our thoughts. It's more part of, it's more of what we think of as our heart or our soul, our inner life, what we are on the inside with all our feelings and our thoughts and our desires. It's kind of what we mean when we say, I love you with my whole heart. When we become Christians by the work of the Holy Spirit, God changes us and changes our whole being like that. Everything that we are, our thoughts, our feelings, our desires, our motives, it all gets turned towards God and it changes what we think is important and what we value. That is a characteristic of being citizens of heaven. And the Bible says that that should bind us together, like one spirit, one mind. When we meet other Christians, there's a moment of recognition, like, oh, you too, we're we're on about the same things. Have you ever had that? that moment of unexpected context when you realise that someone else is a Christian and you automatically realise that that you're connected. United in our ethos and values, we strive together, side by side. That word there is where we get the word athletics from. It's got a sense of struggle, effort, working towards something. But it also has a prefix that means together, together. So we are to strive and to struggle together like athletes. And so the picture that Paul is painting is a bit like a sports team. Like the Maroons the other day, all working together, coordinating plays and pushing towards the same goal, moving with unity and purpose, trying, and successfully in this case, to get the ball over the line. But the try line that we go for as citizens of heaven is the public proclamation about the message of Jesus. It's the faith of the gospel. By faith of the gospel, Paul's not talking about his own subjective feelings about the gospel, like, oh, your faith in the gospel. He's talking about the once and for all, life-changing, rooted-in-history facts about Jesus. His descent from heaven, his incarnation and his life, his death on the cross— his resurrection and exaltation at the Lord's right hand, and that every knee will bow at his name in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that he is Lord. If you remember from last time we looked at Philippians that Paul's strength and effort is directed towards proclaiming that message. It's the source of his deep abiding joy Even in the midst of dire circumstances. But Paul isn't the exception. He's living how all citizens of heaven should live. Bound together by our shared identity and interest in the Lord Jesus, our goal is to proclaim him to the world. We team up and get on with the work of the gospel. Every day when you wake up, it's game day. Today is the day that me and my team, we're going to work together for the faith of the gospel, sharing the good news, the truth of Jesus in love to a dying world. And the gospel isn't just for the lost. Yes, we should be telling others about the love of Jesus displayed on the cross, but we also need to hear it too. We need to hear the gospel every day. We need to be reminded of the good news to challenge us and to encourage us as we grow in the faith. And that all means that that Eastgate isn't a social club where we find people that share your interests. Community groups aren't just a a chit-chat each week with tea and biscuits. It's more like a locker room or a training ground where you and your team get together and learn the plays. You figure out a strategy. You get reminded of the fundamentals You get pumped up and encouraged so that when you get out there into the world, you're match ready. So when you go out there, you're ready. You're striving to present Jesus to your non-Christian friends. You're ready to tell your classmates or your workmates or your housemates or your family. Citizens of heaven strive side by side for the faith of the gospel but that's not the only way that we stand firm as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. We also suffer side by side for faith in the gospel. When we live as citizens of heaven in a foreign country, the way we think and the way we live will look strange and will even result in opposition and persecution. But we shouldn't be discouraged or even surprised because to suffer for Christ is a gift from God. Look at what Paul says in verse 28. And not frightened by anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. The way that the Philippians now lived since they have become Christians stood out enough to make them targets for oppression and persecution. Paul doesn't go into details about their suffering, but they shouldn't be surprised. What they are experiencing are the same struggles that Paul saw himself during his time with them. Acts chapter 16 tells us of Paul's time in Philippi. And while he was there, he performed an exorcism. a cast out the demon of a slave girl. She was being used by her owners to tell fortunes. And once they saw that their means of profiting from her were gone, they had Paul arrested and taken to the local magistrates. And their charge against him was that he wasn't behaving as a Roman citizen should. And that he was leading others astray too. From Acts from verse 20. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They weren't behaving as good Roman citizens should. Well, of course they weren't. They had a new citizenship that they were living out. The Philippians were now going through that same experience. They weren't behaving as Roman citizens should, and that made them stand out. That made them dangerous. They refused to worship Caesar as God. They wouldn't join in in the sacrifices and the feasts of the pagan gods. These were important parts of the Philippian civic life, and these Christians were opting out. Instead, they insisted that there was only one God, the only Lord that they worshipped was an executed Jewish criminal called Jesus, who they claimed had risen from the dead and is Lord, not just of Rome, but of the whole world. And so, because they were so conspicuously different, so dangerously different, they were persecuted. Can you imagine the the incredible temptation to just keep your head down and join in? Swear allegiance to Caesar, but put your fingers crossed behind your back. As citizens of heaven, they should stand firm without being frightened of their opponents. And they should take it as a sign that things are going as they should do. It's unnatural for us to think about suffering in that way, isn't it? Our instinct is to take suffering and oppression as a sign that something has gone wrong. We might interpret it as evidence that maybe God isn't as good as we thought he was or that maybe he's not really in control and that there are other forces at work making our life difficult or that maybe we've done something wrong to anger him and now we're being punished. Paul says no. It's not a sign that anything's gone wrong. It's a sign of your salvation When people oppose you, it's evidence that they're not on the side of the gospel. And if they were, they wouldn't be opposing you. They're enemies of their gospel, and their end is destruction. But when you're opposed for being a Christian, you stand firm. It's evidence that you belong to Jesus, that you are a citizen of heaven, and you'll be saved. In that way, Paul says that actually your suffering is a part of God's grace to you. It's strange, isn't it, that it is a gift? It's the kind of gift that we might be tempted to say no to. Isn't it? Oh, oh, I'll pass on this one, thanks. But we shouldn't see it that way. It has been granted to us for the sake of Christ. Do you see that in the verse twenty-nine? Get the next slide, please. We'll get there eventually. Never mind, look at it in your own Bibles. Look at verse 29. It has been granted to us to believe in him. Our faith is God's gift. He elects and predestines us, and he fills us with his Spirit and gives us the gift of faith. And he grants us to suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we are joined by the Holy Spirit to Jesus We are united to him. We participate in him. We identify with him. And our suffering is with him and for him. It shouldn't surprise us, Jesus says, that if that's how they treated him, we shouldn't expect it any different. When we're opposed for being followers of Jesus by the same forces of evil that opposed him, it's evidence that we're on his side and that we belong to him. But it's also something we don't go through alone. We suffer side by side. You see there in verse 30 how Paul says that the Philippians are engaged in the same conflict as him. Not the same type of conflict, the same conflict. Remember, that's what he'd given thanks to God for his prayer in chapter 1. That they were partners in his imprisonment. As fellow citizens, with a common identity, our suffering is shared. When the Philippians were beaten, Paul feels those blows. Their suffering is his suffering, and his suffering is their suffering. The time is coming and is already here when we'll face opposition for being citizens of heaven. People will say about us, They advocate customs that are not lawful for Australians to accept or practice. In parts of Australia, the time is already here where praying for someone, with their permission, that they would live a life consistent with God's design for sex and gender, could see you put in jail. It's here. The temptation will be to catipulate and to stay quiet, maybe cross our fingers behind our back, but citizens of heaven won't be afraid of their opponents. They will stand side by side, counting it all joy as they suffer for the sake of the Lord Jesus, and to be counted as one of his people. It's God's gracious gift to us to be counted with his people. Each of us, as we come to the Lord Jesus in repentance and faith, are now dual citizens. We're Australians with all the privileges that come with it, but more truly, more fundamentally, we are citizens of heaven. With Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, that is our primary allegiance. Our calling is to live wherever we are until Jesus returns, shaped by the values and the priorities of our new life in Him, to live as citizens worthy. That means striving side by side as we proclaim the good news of our Lord Jesus. It means suffering side by side, knowing that we're sharing in the sufferings of Christ and bearing up one another. And we all do this with the joy and the confidence that comes from knowing Jesus as our Lord and our Saviour. Let us pray that God will give us a heart for the gospel like Paul's and for us to live lives as citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the salvation that he brings, for the hope that he gives in life and in death. We pray that you'll so transform our hearts and minds that we'd know true joy, the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. And knowing that joy, help us delight in making him known as we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Lord, give us joy in hostility. Give us joy in the face of rivalry. Give us joy in any circumstance, even in life and death, as we see your gospel proclaimed.